From PRX and NPR, I'm Al Letson, and you're listening to State of the Reunion. Today we're in Birmingham, Alabama, where people are not afraid to face this town's heavy history. The entrance that we just came in would have been the white entrance. And as we walk, we'll pass what was the colored entrance. But Birmingham is much more than a monument to racial strife in America. It was something that was about fun, it was about buoyancy, it was about the spirit, it was about entertainment. It's about people making sacrifices to bridge divides. I don't know how much you know about Jean. Her life savings she took, she paid for us. And it's about people coming together for the sake of the blues. If you ain't got no money, you come. Or if you want to bring your own fried possum, you bring it. And everybody come here, they say, uh, man, they ain't never seen nothing like it. Coming up on State of the Reunion, moving beyond the shadow of history in Birmingham, Alabama. But first, this news. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and every episode we go into a different American city or town and talk to people who make it not just a place, but a community. We tell stories of the land and the people connected to it and try to understand an area's struggles as well as its triumphs. Today we're in Birmingham, Alabama, a city that's known happiness and heartbreak. An industrial boom town that sprang up overnight, Birmingham was once spilling over with potential. People called it the Magic City. But Birmingham was held back by one raging social issue. Black people and white people did not mix. It was socially forbidden. My mother said, don't you ever, ever touch a white kid. From then on, I know I wasn't supposed to touch them. I always avoided them as a little kid. And Birmingham's police and politicians made sure it stayed that way. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. That's the law enforcement agency. That's what you've got them hired for. And the governor of the state of Alabama handled this thing. By the 1950s, federal laws had changed and schools were supposed to be integrated. But day-to-day life in Birmingham was slow to catch up. The African-American community demanded change while many of the white citizens dug in their heels. Violence broke out tonight in Birmingham, Alabama, as police and police dogs charged a group of 600 Negroes marching on City Hall. Negroes and whites... And if necessary... We must be willing to fill up the jails all over the state of The battle for integration was fought in the streets, and Birmingham had more than its share of ugly moments. 1963 was the year City Commissioner Bull Connor brought out fire hoses and dogs against the Children's Crusade march downtown, when the rest of the world saw dogs snapping and jets of water blasting kids across the downtown park. Birmingham's family secret was out. They turned the fire hoses on them. I, I knew that I was there, and I had no clue that 50 years later it would be on TV every year, you know. When the courts finally ruled that the white and colored signs dividing downtown Birmingham should come down, the backlash was tragic. In September of 1963, less than two weeks after the historic march on Washington, A bomb went off in the 16th Street Baptist Church, killing four young black girls. This is the clock that used to be in the main sanctuary, and it stopped at 1022, the exact time the bomb went off. When men will seek to destroy the Church of God, Mm -hmm. they have degenerated to a tragic level (laughs) of inhumanity and sin and evil. The city would never be the same. 
The tragedy left hard to heal wounds that still haunt us as a nation. Here in Birmingham, there are people who'd like nothing more than to escape their city's history, but I was surprised to learn that there are many more who've decided it's time to dig deeper in that past and look it squarely in the eye. If you've ever been to Birmingham, you just can't miss the huge cast iron statue of Vulcan, the Roman god of metalworking. He looks out over the city from a mountain with a blacksmith's hammer in one hand and an anvil by his side. Vulcan is a symbol of Birmingham as a steel town. Because long before the famous civil rights battles downtown, that's what Birmingham was known for. Steel. Red iron ore, specifically. Just a few miles from downtown is where most of that famous red iron ore came from, Red Mountain. But when the steel industry collapsed in the 80s, U.S. Steel left behind nothing but holes in the ground on a kudzu-covered mountain where no one was allowed to go. Today, you need a jeep to get around Red Mountain. The roads are pitted and muddy, surrounded by a green forest. It's hard to imagine thousands of miners swarming these hills. If anybody gets car sick, let me know. <laughs> Roll the window down for you. Eric McFerrin first came up here as a mountain biker years ago, exploring what was left of the mines. I, I was trespassing in my early days. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Eric is the type of guy who, as a kid, would take his toys apart to see how they operate, then put them back together. As an adult, he worked on airplanes, and when he started exploring Red Mountain and came across the old mines, well, it didn't take long for him to become obsessed. If you were to walk up, you see the remnants of a bridge up here. That was an old car bridge that ran between the 13 and 14 mines. He had to understand how this massive operation worked, so he went back and forth from the library to the abandoned mines, gleaning all he could. Now, this went on for 16 years. Birmingham is kind of an industrial archaeological oddity, I guess. So there's a lot of interesting things from 108 years of ore mining that are right here in the woods that, that still remain. A few years ago, U.S. Steel sold their land on Red Mountain to Birmingham to make an 1,100-acre city park. And now Eric, well, he's got his dream job. He's a ranger working for what will soon open as Red Mountain Park. I think it's divine intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's become your passion now, right? Well, it was my passion before. Now I'm just living the dream. <laughs> now Eric knows more than almost anyone about mining in Birmingham. The rusting machinery, the crumbling buildings, even Big Steel's notorious history of forcing convicts to work in the mines a century ago. But from the beginning, Red Mountain was different. Conditions were still tough, but better than at other mines. Eric has been piecing together Red Mountain's more recent history, collecting stories of people, black folks and white, who lived and worked here. Many of them say that up here, race relations were different than in the city below. A lot of them will tell you that we grew up playing together, as, as kids in the mine camps, a lot of them will tell you that um, one of the uh, African-American families would send vegetables home from the garden with one of the white miners, or the white miner would bring pies that mom had cooked to one of the African-American families. I was born and raised in number seven, but, but I lived on New Hill all my life. That's Eloise Mastin. She grew up near number seven mine. Her husband was a miner, and so was her father. We met up with Eloise, Shirley Crumpton, and Ethel Dunnigan outside a church in Tarpley City, a little hollow where one of the mining camps was. All three women grew up here. Mother hired a lady to do her ironing, and all I can remember is her name was Duck. 
Miss Duck was the one who did the ironing for your parents. That's right. We called her Mama Duck. So these three ladies were so excited to compare memories from 50 years before, I could hardly get them to slow down and talk one at a time. Mm-hmm. I said, I we were all, We all went to school right here. We were raised up in the company yeah. houses. Our father worked in the mines, so... Yeah. So this was with one big family. But the, but was the the issue of race as um, tough up here as it was like in in just regular Birmingham? Birmingham's we, race started in the sixties. That's right. Mm-hmm. And the races was, lived together. It, it it was just the way it was at that time. You know, no one questioned it. When no. the government came in, <laughs> yeah. When the government said we're going to fix this, and then the problems really began, and that's not a very good thing to say, I guess. But uh, people loved each other. I would walk down. That was Shirley, and what she said really stuck with me, because you know I can tell you, growing up as an African American in the South, just after the Civil Rights era, her take is not how I experienced the aftermath of that time. But that gets to the heart of race in America. It's striking how people grow up at the same time and same place can have such different perceptions. At Red Mountain Park, most of the people we talk to, both black and white, have good memories about the place. They say that, to an extent, race was put aside. I'm Amos Horton. I worked at number 7, 8, 9, and 10 on the outside, over mines, and then I went underground. Amos Horton is a retired white miner. Willie Kamek worked on a black crew. Uh, Willie Kamek, old man at 14. I stayed there till it closed. We asked him about how black and white miners got along underground, where the work was grueling and dangerous. The only thing I could tell you about that, the way I feel about it, when you enter that hole right there and, and go down, uh, Everybody's looking out for everybody. And you have a bond between everybody. Yeah, and uh that's and you care you carry that with you on the outside when you come out. It it just ain't down there because you have a feeling for this for that same person outside that you will down there. Really? <laughs> Nobody everybody was staying color when they come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really it does, uh, but it really didn't make. Uh, I believe that's where really uh, discrimination and stuff broke down some, because people that back in then got a chance to get used to white people more, and the white people got used to color people more because they were right together, working together. Not everyone who worked at Red Mountain felt these kind of bonds. Blacks, excuse the expression, they caught hell in that mind as far as work is concerned. Elsie Culpepper worked in Red Mountain just after World War II. Mines, or mines in Birmingham, Alabama, were built for black folk. You had a few whites who were mine farmers and mine captains and so forth. For Elsie, race relations underground were more practical than anything else. You were hired to work, and the man expected you to produce. So that means then whatever uh, your assignment, if you had to do that assignment. Whether you was working next to a white guy or not. You had to whatever, whatever, whoever it was, uh, 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 you had to work, you had to work, you worked together. You as Steve, 
they expect you to work. They expect you to produce. And produce they did. For decades, Red Mountain laid the foundation for Birmingham, and the iron that came out of this mountain, well, it helped the U.S. fight two world wars. Park Ranger Eric McFerrin. You know, the people here are what made it happen. They're, they're, Red Mountain Park is a celebration of this history, though. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a racial thing. I mean, black and white, the people that worked here significantly contributed to the building of a superpower. I mean, really, they did. And uh, that's a, to me, that's something to celebrate. The park is slated to open in 2014. Until then, Eric will be scouring the landscape for every last bit of mining history here. Coming up, we dust off a treasure from Birmingham's storied vaudeville past and meet a woman who says that for her community, the civil rights era is now. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and we are in downtown Birmingham on 3rd Avenue, on the edge of what used to be the Black Business District. We're here to look in on some of Birmingham's forgotten history, hidden behind some double glass doors, which are kind of stuck. This is me trying to get the padlock <laughs> off the door. Jesse, you want to have a go at this? Yeah, sure. The two people wrestling with the padlock are about to take us inside the Lyric Theater. It's been sitting here abandoned for about 50 years. So I will turn on the lights in here. Uh, my name's Jesse Chambers. I'm Glennie Brock, and I'm the volunteer coordinator for the Lyric. And we're here in the lobby of the beautiful Lyric Theater, built in 1914. We're standing in the ruins of a once decadent lobby. Now the black marble floors are covered with dust and the paint is peeling off the walls. But when Birmingham was a boomtown, back before the Great Depression, it was the showbiz capital of the South. And this whole downtown strip was glowing with the lights of a dozen theaters. The Lyric was just one of them. Definitely, like, looks like it needs work, but you can see, like, kind of what it looked like before. I mean, like, this is, the work up here is beautiful. But the Lyric was different, because every other theater was either black only or white only. Here, black people and white people could see the same show on the same night for the same price. They just couldn't sit together. The entrance that we just came in would have been the white entrance. And as we walk into the theater, we'll pass what was the colored entrance. And then there are the stairs, the stairs that lead up to the, the second balcony where African-Americans sat. And this is the, what was the colored entrance? The colored entrance. Now, was there a wall here that stopped them from coming in here, or was, was it open like this? Uh, there, I have heard conflicting stories, <laughs> like, uh-huh. to answer that question. Walking past that separate entrance gives me a strange like feeling. I never would have seen this lobby if I had lived in Birmingham in the Lyric's heyday. Be that as it may, both blacks and whites have good memories of this place, a rarity in Birmingham. Glennie and Jesse are determined to renovate the Lyric and bring this place back to life. They've already cleaned up a lot, and they know all the building's secrets. I do want to show you this. Windows into its past. So this 
is like an old-fashioned intercom that would have called down to the dressing room. It's like, like an old-fashioned hose pipe with a metal bell at the end. So someone would have stood here on the, in the backstage area and said, Mae West, your curtain call in five minutes. Mae West, your curtain call in five minutes. When I'm down here, I imagine the, the sounds, you know, the yes. you know, dancers on stage, you know, with their tap yes. shoes or something yes. pounding on the stage. And, and people, you know, who can't find their costume pieces or... Makeup, dressing room one. Five minutes for Miss West. Where is my wig? Where is my... People bumming cigarettes. Hey, are you with violin. I bum a light. Sure thing, pal. Thanks, much obliged. Smoking, God knows what. Yeah. You know, there were musicians here. <laughs> uh, it's, this is just a sacred ground to me. I just, it blows my mind every time I come down here. It's great. I get goosebumps every time... You know, every time I'm talking about it, for Jesse, it's the dressing rooms, and for me, it's the stage. The whole theater is in between falling apart and being put back together, but it still has this energy to it. Like the ghosts of the greats that once graced this stage are still here. When Rube Goldberg, Mae West, the Marx Brothers, Buster Keaton was here with his mom and dad when they did the act, the Three Keatons, and they threw Buster around the stage a lot. They, these are the original boards. This is the stage where they all performed. So right now you're standing somewhere where Groucho Marx and his brothers stood one time. This stage has history varnished into its wood. As a performer, I can close my eyes and easily imagine how it felt with a full house. The energy of the place practically leaps from the floorboards. It's when I look up at the colored section that that strange feeling comes back. You know, I'm on the edge of being 40 years old and all my life. I've heard stories, seen pictures, read the histories of the Jim Crow South, but I never experienced it for myself. Standing here in the Lyric, looking up at the colored balcony, I can't help but feel, I don't know, you know angry, sad. It's, it's hard to describe when you are face to face with a custom or law that basically said that you were less than other people, but that's part of the history of the Lyric and of the city. The the acts of racist violence that happened here, the dogs and the fire hoses and the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church by Klansmen, these things at one point were our greatest sources of shame, and now they are on the marketing material. These sites of bombings and beatings are now tourist attractions. I mean, it, it's sort of a strange, a strange shift to make. But it's probably a necessary shift. I mean, like it or not, it's here. This isn't the history of black America or white America. It's all of our history. And we have to find a way to talk about it, to make peace with it in order to move forward. Without having those hard conversations, we can't rediscover the joyful parts of places like the lyric. It was something that was about fun. It was about buoyancy. It was about the spirit. It was about entertainment. And I think it symbolized this kind of raucous early Birmingham that's so different from the one we know now. And if we can, if we can renovate the lyric, we can get that back. Every place we visit, we ask residents to pen a letter to the place they call home. This one is from Gervasia Harris Bowser. Dear Birmingham, I guess you always knew I'd come back to you. For six years, I called other cities home, but I came back to the rich red earth 
that birthed me. I came back to seemingly endless DMV lines and poor customer service. I came back to government scandals and corrupt local politicians who have nicknames like Lala. I came back to crime reports that scare suburbanites away from your downtown. But I am not afraid of you. I know the stories behind your scars. A city of lesser strength than yours would have crumbled beneath such a dark and heavy history. But you fought on. Your name is not Birmingham. You are not a land of billy clubs and burning crosses. You are a provocative prince and photographs from your annual art walk. You are the remarkably talented children I teach. Children that will hug you and hold your hand regardless of its color. You are dinner at Rogue Tavern and decadent cupcakes from Urban Standard Coffee House. You are the swanky downtown lofts I wish I could afford. And just when I start daydreaming about cities with reliable public transit systems, a stranger crosses my path with an act of kindness and reminds me that you, Birmingham, are home. Love, Javasia Harris Bowser. Like many places across the country, Birmingham is changing. This is a very different city from the civil rights era, even from a decade ago. The Hispanic population has been booming here. You can see the change in some neighborhoods with taquerias and Mexican grocery stores springing up. The shift hasn't been easy for Birmingham or for the new Hispanic immigrants either. There's one place in town where those two worlds have been colliding, sometimes in the most dramatic fashion. I love this building. The criminal courthouse. Hola, ¿estás dónde? We're at the lobby uh, of the Jefferson County Criminal Courthouse and about to go in. We're waiting for another interpreter. Okay, entonces llegaste directamente a Judge Ross. Mavi Figueres okay. is a court interpreter okay. Perfect. Ciao. She's originally from Costa Rica, but she's lived in Alabama for 18 years now. In her dark trim suit, she fits in with the criminal justice crowd. But for Birmingham's Spanish-speaking community, Mavi stands out. Almost single-handedly, she's put Hispanics on the radar of Birmingham's judicial system. So now they come and check. This is our jail list, and we have one. Mavi's got a system for doing her job. One per, okay, the other, there's a Hispanic sitting already in the back, so he was not in jail. Every morning, she gets to the courthouse and looks through the dockets to find where the Spanish speakers are which courtroom she should go to. Sometimes, Mavi works as many as 20 cases in one morning. Today, she's starting by helping a defendant meet with his lawyer for the first time. Let me interpret first. The pressure is on because the defendant has to decide quickly whether to plead guilty or not guilty. No, no, let me explain it to you. I do not, I do not understand English and I did not know what he was telling me. The defendant, he didn't want us to use his name, is a guy about 35 years old. He's wearing blue and gray striped pants and a t-shirt that says Jefferson County Jail. He's shackled at the wrist and ankles. 
and he looks scared. Give me a moment to try to explain to you, okay? Okay. I'm going to read you what the police report says, okay? And you can tell me what part you agree with and what part you disagree with. They don't understand. And, and you try to explain, that's what the attorney was trying to explain, and it, it's not getting in. So it's very frustrating a lot of times, especially because I have to use the words that the attorneys are using. That's rule number one for legal interpreters. Mavi can only say what has already been said by someone else. Rule number two is particularly hard for her. As an interpreter, you have to be emotionless. You cannot show any expressions and emotions. There's one situation in particular where it's hard for Mavi to keep it together. The final goodbyes between family members, usually a wife and kids, saying goodbye to their father, who's about to be deported. And they're hugging them, and that's when then the voice says, time's up. That's the last time that they're going to see each other. So standing there with a blank face is one of the most difficult things to do, and inside I'm completely torn. Mavi sees a lot of deportations, and she has to be prepared for moments like these. It is very easy for me to tear up, and therefore that is when an interpreter always carries a bottle of water. That way, when you feel you're about to tear, you start drinking water and you swallow your tears. It is, it is a trick. It really works. She's gotten good at keeping her poker face at work. But outside the courthouse, Mavi is a pretty emotional person. On the day she got to vote as a U.S. citizen for the first time, she earned herself the nickname, the crying lady. I dressed up with a suit, of course, and I went to where my area says, vote here. My best friend was with me, and I told him if he could take a picture of me. And as soon as I was standing next to the vote here, I just started tearing. It was just... <laughs> the privilege... It is amazing being able to vote. It was wonderful. And um, so I couldn't stop crying. It was ridiculous and so embarrassing. Mavi hasn't missed an election since. And she's watched the Hispanic community grow and grow in Birmingham. Before Mavi came to work at the Jefferson County Courthouse, the process for how to deal with Spanish speakers didn't exist because there just weren't that many Hispanics coming through the courts. Judge Laura Petro remembers one of the first times she had to deal with the language barrier back in the 90s. At that time, I remember uh, I was in district court and one of the judges called a Catholic priest friend of his who spoke Spanish and he passed the phone back and forth from the priest to the defendant and um, handled the case that way. Sometimes children would be asked to interpret for their parents or judges would just wing it on their own. After a mistrial on a capital murder case, Jefferson County realized they needed somebody truly qualified. Mavi was brought in as the county's first contracted interpreter. She immediately saw that there was this huge communication gap, and she was determined to figure out a way to bridge it. It was very difficult because at the beginning, um, I was almost like a threat for a lot of people, and it's their territory. So how to break that ice, how to get them in your side and to be friendly without being overly friendly. To break the ice, Mavi decided to offer Spanish lessons and started with the judges, including the presiding judge of the Tenth Circuit, Scott Val. She uh, brought together a group of us and we met once a week for lunch. 
and had Spanish lessons. And uh, while none of us are fluent in Spanish, we learned enough uh, words and phrases to let non-English speaking litigants, when they come into our courtrooms, know that we cared enough about them to learn a few preliminary remarks and to say buenos dias and such things as that. That really opened the doors for me to become one of them instead of the stuck-up, who-are-you type of... There's a lot of, of levels here of, you know, who is who and who what does what. So by giving the classes to judges, to bailiffs, to everybody, it put me in, I'm, I'm one of you guys. After two years of free lunch hour Spanish lessons, practically everybody in the courthouse greets Mavi in Spanish these days. And for Judge Val, the shift in the courthouse culture is an important milestone. I feel very strongly that uh, a city uh, and a state like Birmingham and Alabama uh, has to be extra sensitive to racial or ethnic issues because of our history. And we've got to be so careful to not let our history repeat itself and hopefully to learn what we did wrong uh, before the civil rights movement and avoid uh, those pitfalls in dealing with the Hispanic community. A lot of people in Birmingham are hopeful that the city can chart a different course now, 50 years after the civil rights movement. But despite the gains within the courthouse, Hispanics here fear for the future. We happened to be in town on Martin Luther King Day, and downtown was filled with people who'd come from all over to celebrate. Oh, the scene is beautiful. You know, the beautiful part about it, we don't have just one race here today. We have multi-different races here today because it wasn't just for black rights, it was for equal rights. But on that same day, a dark cloud hung over Mavi and the Hispanic community. You see, Martin Luther King Day was also the day Alabama's new governor chose to hold his inauguration. He'd run and won on a platform to clamp down on illegal immigration. It's not illegal immigrants, it's illegal aliens, and they're not supposed to be here. Now, I know they want to come here and have a... For Mavi and other leaders in the Hispanic community, this was a slap in the face. The bill proposed by Governor Bentley, like the one passed in Arizona last year, has caused panic among Latinos in Birmingham. Mavi and other leaders in the community are determined to fight this bill. They see it as their civil rights crusade. Some of the leaders are encouraging Hispanics who are not yet citizens to stay in Alabama, risky as it may be, and join the fight. But Mavi herself is less optimistic. She says she's seen so many people deported at the courthouse that for many families, staying might not be worth the risk. If we, once we start hearing this week and the next few weeks what's going to happen with the immigration law, one of the things I strongly recommend Hispanics that live in the state of Alabama, get out. Go. If you are not a U.S. citizen, go. The legislation could go either way. But whatever happens, Mavi and her community will keep pushing Birmingham to adapt, just as they've had to adapt, to make a home here. Coming up, one of the last juke joints left in Alabama. And one woman whose personal sacrifice is music to the ears of Birmingham's young people. 
Support for State of the Reunion comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, a growing network of listeners, producers, and stations collaborating to make public radio more public. PRX.org. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and today we're in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, all over the country, education budgets are being slashed, especially for the arts, and Birmingham is no different. Yet every Saturday, kids flock to the Highlands United Methodist Church for music lessons. This program is called Scroll Works, and today there are about 120 kids here, and they're running from room to room, trying out drums, violins, saxophones, even singing. It's a pretty incredible, chaotic scene, and when the youth orchestra gets going, what's amazing is not the music. They're still working on that part. What's amazing is the fact that these are kids from all walks of Birmingham life. Black, white, Hispanic, middle class, less well off, they're all brought together here by music, and the fact that lessons are pretty much free. Parents pay a $25 registration fee, and their kids get lessons. Right now at this time, that's why I was looking for something like this. Um, money is very tight, and anything that I can get for free... It's know, not just the lessons that are free. So are the instruments. Close. Nakaya Mays, a 10th grader, is here taking sax lessons, trying to catch up enough to join her high school band. Her mom tells her it runs in the family. She was in the band, and my dad was in the band, my aunt was in the band, my uncle was in the band, almost everybody in my family was in the band. And now that's so happy that I'm following their footsteps to get in the band. <laughs> slide down. Mark Anthony Jimenez is here with five of his nine brothers and sisters. Do you, do you see a, a point where you guys become the Jackson Five? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've definitely, definitely thought about that because my sister is really good with the piano. Uh, my brother plays the guitar. Uh, I play the drums. You know, we all have you know, pretty good voices. So, you know, who knows? Yeah. In the future, who knows? The, the Jimenez Five. Behind all of this, the parents meeting each other, the kids making friends, the music itself. She's doing drums. There's no giant corporate gift or an anonymous benefactor. There's one woman, Jean Goforth, retired geological engineer. And for these 120 kids, she is the gateway into the world of music. <laughs> Starting to all blur together. <laughs> so you need a pen? When Jean's daughter was growing up, she was in a youth orchestra in Birmingham. Her daughter's an adult now, a professional cellist, actually. Jean noticed, though, that these days, fewer and fewer kids in Birmingham were getting a chance to learn an instrument. You know, it's one of the first things that gets cut is music education. The recession made things even worse. Scrollworks is designed to fill that gap. We had some kids coming because band was dropped in their school and they had no place to go and they couldn't afford lessons. And we're getting a lot of kids from the rural suburbs of Birmingham that are the same thing. They just, it isn't offered in their school. So how does a retired suburban mom end up starting something like Scrollworks? You gotta go back in time about four years ago. When Jean first saw the need for music lessons in Birmingham, she decided to act. But in order to do anything, she needed money. So the first step 
was to give up her life savings. Yes, that's right. Jean took her entire savings and retirement money and cashed it out to start this program. Well, well I, I know when I saw f- the 50 approaching, when I looked at my life, I didn't feel like I was doing anything worthwhile. And I wanted to be doing worthwhile things by the time I was 50. So Jean paid for instruments, started bringing in teachers, and welcomed the children of Birmingham. All they had to do was show up and play. We're doing, we're doing really well. This, I got my first paycheck on December 15th, $250, <laughs> after three years. <laughs> so that, that is a big, that's really exciting. <laughs> As you can imagine, after giving up her savings, her own budget was tight. So Jean moved from the suburbs into a neighborhood called East Lake in the city. That move has brought the obstacles facing some of the more disadvantaged families into focus. That's something I've learned. The preconceptions you have living in middle class, suburban, you know, you just have no idea what, what these people are dealing with. Understanding the pressure on poor families has made Jean more determined to get those kids involved, to give them an outlet. But the transition into a new neighborhood hasn't been entirely easy. That, that house is abandoned. Two across the street are abandoned. That house is empty. You know, I've heard gunshots a lot. Some of Jean's colleagues say they worry about her giving away so much that she'll end up with nothing for herself. But she can't seem to stop. And stories like Matthew Belser's help explain why. Matthew's an African-American kid who joined the Scroll Works Orchestra as a fifth grader back when it was mostly white kids. He was the, the first and only black child in the, in the room. And he'd had some really bad experiences at, at some of his other schools. For Matthew's mother, what happened that day was a huge deal. They just accepted him. She told me and she was in tears and she said, this, this, is a first, this changed his whole conception of white people because these boys they're they were all on the music plane they were fascinated that he played these other instruments they played other instruments they were comparing notes and and you know they became friends over music and it changed his thinking as it turns out Jean herself had a similar experience she ended up becoming really close friends with Matthew's mom Leslie and Leslie grew up in Birmingham during the civil rights era She was actually friends with one of the girls who died at the 16th Street Baptist Church. She told us about a trip that she and Jean took together that changed the both of them. We went to an old plantation. There was a winding road and all the fields around everywhere. And my first thought was slaves used to be out here, backs bent and babies on their backs. I pictured the whole thing. Now, as Leslie was seeing slaves out on that plantation, All Jean saw at first was a beautiful field. I had not realized the kind of hurts that she suffered. And then something miraculous happened. They talked about it. Now, just saying it sounds like, you know, what's the big deal? But it was a big deal for Leslie to be able to speak her truth. And she accepted that. And there was no, um, well, I don't know why you still feel that way. We're beyond that now, uh, that some people get upset about. They, they want you to put it behind, but how in the world can you? How in the world? That's what you've really helped me understand. Mm-hmm. That's what you've really helped me understand. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Jean. <Jane. laughs> <laughs> 
This is exactly what Gene wants for Scrollworks, a pathway to connect people whose lives normally would never intersect. Not a small thing because honestly, in our society, how often do we talk to someone with a different point of view and allow ourselves to let go of our preconceptions? And while the adults on the sidelines chip away at those barriers, the kids, well, they just want to play. By the way, that's Leslie's son, Matthew, on the saxophone. He's now an eighth grader at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. So, when we were in Birmingham, we heard about an honest-to-goodness, true Alabama juke joint. And we knew we had to see it. The rumor we heard went like this. The place was run by a 90-something-year-old gravedigger named Mr. Gipp, and you had to know someone who knew someone to find your way there. We're going to go the simple way. Um, as I said, this is in the deepest parts of Birmingham. So That's local artist Trey Taylor. He'd been to Gibbs a few times before, so he loaded up the car with our crew and a few friends and drove us all out to Gibbs' place on a cold, foggy Saturday night. Trey first went to Gibbs about four years ago. So he is actually putting these this juke joint on in his backyard. Yeah, it started about 50 years ago. From my understanding, it probably started in his kitchen. And it was just a place where uh, a lot of the neighbors would come and play music. All right, let's see. Let me turn around. And we took more than a few wrong turns on those bumpy roads. Whoa! (laughs) It's a lot of weight in this car. I didn't think we were ever going to get there. After about an hour, though, we spotted this big orange detour sign emerging from the fog. Gotta love that. Way out on the edge of the woods, there were cars parked all along the road. And we're at Gibbs. <laughs> we followed the music until we saw a fire blazing in a barrel outside a shack, and there was quite a crowd. How'd you end up here at Gibbs? <laughs> the drummer that's playing tonight was at our house this afternoon hooking up my cable system, and we got to talking, and he and said he was playing drums tonight. So I said, where are you going to be? And he explained how to get here. That's why we're here. So, what do you guys think so far? This is great. I never knew. I've lived in, Be- in Bessemer for about 15 years, and I didn't know this was here. Yeah. When we got inside, we finally caught a glimpse of Gip, the man. He was on stage getting ready to sing, a tall man wearing a big white cowboy hat and a red and white windbreaker. I gotta say, Gip didn't look a day over 80. When we finally got a chance to talk to Mr. Gibb, he squeezed a dented can of beer in one hand and waved us into a little one-room shack just a little ways from the stage. My name is Red is Herman. Everybody called me Henry. Henry L. Gibson. G-I-P-S-O-N instead of B. I asked Mr. Gibb how all this started. I mean, this would have been back in the 50s. Will you ask me for the truth? I'm going to give it to you. All right. Some years, some years back. Uh, long about it didn't take long for Gip's story to start sounding like an old blues song. First, there was the part about getting hit by lightning. I got struck by lightning. And burned all my hair off my head. That's one thing. Then there was the part about getting caught in a stampede. Then I came right back and started back and I got a stampede. Ouch. 
and got up and got this book or what you see across here and stomped in too for peeing in it. Don't worry, I got lost too. But near the end of it, Gip talked about getting beat up pretty bad by a guy who stomped on him and put him out of work. And they just stomped my hand, man, and, and, and they, 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 they did me put it off. Determined to get revenge, Gip went back with a gun to kill the guy. But an old man appeared, telling him not to make that mistake. Go back to your home, to your family, the man said. And Gip did. And somehow, some way, that is when he found the blues. I love old blues. John Lee Hooker, Muddy Water, Lightning Hawking, Slim Hopper and all that. These are my type of blues that I love. And I can't get them out of my head. So Gibb started a juke joint behind his house, and over the years, plenty of blues legends have played there. And Gibbs is still going strong. There's a core group of guys who keep this place going. They expanded the stage a few years ago, and they helped book the shows. Lenny Madden is one of them, and he remembers when his friend Johnny Bondo first took him to Gibbs in the 90s. By that time, it was probably 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and, and I came down his driveway, and I said, Johnny, we're going to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> he said, we're going we're gonna to get shot. He's walking down the driveway, and he, Johnny's yelling, Hey, Gip! Lenny also remembers the kind of blues he heard that night. It was almost like discovering a secret portal to 1920s Alabama. The music was, it was raw, it was real. And I'd ask some of the guys, or I asked them, Have you ever heard of this guy, Big John Jackson? You ever heard of it? And they never heard of him. And what I began to realize was all the songs and all the music that they were playing was stuff that Gip heard from somebody or their uncle heard from somebody. Listen, they didn't know that uh, uh, Death Letter Blues was by Sunhouse. They just knew that their uncle John sang it, you know, and everything was just, it was, it was literally passed down. For Lenny, Johnny Bondo, and the other regulars, discovering Gips was like discovering their long-lost family. You know, we just all this fell in love with each other. As you come up here, you know, the magic in this place. The most important thing for Gibbs' blues family is to keep the place feeling like home. It was four or five years before we told him about We kept it a secret. Yeah, we didn't want to do that because it looked like it was getting kind of crowded, you know. You're scared so we, of losing that magic. Yeah, yeah, especially when you, it's so much love among the people. You know, like an outsider coming in may not understand a thing like that. So, and it's so good to you just kind of keep it to yourself. Lately, the secret's gotten out about Gibbs, and more and more people are coming here all the time. But Gibbs has no intention of making any changes. For him, this place is just as it should be, a shrine to the blues and to the blues makers. And I can't let the people who died before me, uh, I can't let their remembrance go buried under the ground while I'm still on top. In case you missed that, Gibbs said, the people who died before me can't let their remembrance go buried under the ground while I'm still on top. And he won't. I'm sure of that. You know, I hate to go down, I hate to go down this lonesome road. Hate to go down this lonesome road by myself. Yes, I guess I might have well to make it. Old lightning don't have nobody else. When we decided to go to Birmingham, I was personally uncomfortable going to a place with such brutal history. But you can't do a show on America and only go into places you're comfortable in. It just doesn't work. So we came, and what surprised me the most was that 
Instead of pretending the tough history didn't happen, Birmingham, unlike many places in the South, is trying to deal with it. It's not easy, it's not perfect, but it's necessary. Maybe this shouldn't come as a surprise though, because even in the depths of the civil rights struggle, Martin Luther King had hope for the city. You can hear it in his letter from a Birmingham jail. I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Those words ring true for the people of Birmingham today. See, everyone we talk to, black, white, Hispanic, they're all looking to move beyond the heartache and pain of the past and chart a new course into the future. We were just so defined by steel for so long. And once that was gone, it's just been this sort of shifting, these shifting sands that we're all on, trying to figure out, like, what is this place? What is this place? 10 years ago, 11 years ago, there was nothing, no, no Hispanic people. I mean, if you saw one, like, you were happy, like, hey, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mexican too, Hispanic. <laughs> I like Alabama now. This is where my kids were born. If we can get some projects going downtown and people come back here, you know, black people are going to come, white people are going to come. And, you know, I, I think gradually things will just get better. But I always came back here. For some reason, it just, it just brings you back. So this is home, and I'm hoping that I can get a good old southern accent that is so beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Birmingham, the long story short, was produced by Laura Starcheski with help from senior editor Taki Telenitis. The rest of the Sochu staff is researcher Marietta Sinotis, business manager Bree Burge, director of photography Patrick Berry, producers Tina Antolini and Brenton Crozier, director of development is Stacy Cobb, and Ian D'Souza is the Jamadian juggernaut. Special thanks to Richard Paul, StoryCorps, and producer Pia Kochar. You can see more of Birmingham, short video documentaries, and the other places we've gone at stateoftheReunion.com. So True is distributed by PRX and NPR, with major funding provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Al Let's Get your mojo working. And remember, things fall apart. Our job is to bring them back together. Support for NPR comes from NPR member stations and from the Kauffman Foundation, working to advance innovations in education and entrepreneurial success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, making grants to solve social and environmental problems at home and around the world, on the web at Hewlett.org. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, at GatesFoundation.org. This is NPR.